Good morning from Grace City Church, downtown Denver. My name is Matt Hand, pastor at Grace City. Thanks for joining us this morning for part two of our new series, Counterculture. The other night, my eyes were exceptionally dry and tired, so I went up to our bathroom, I took out my contacts lenses, stored them in the proper solution, came back down, plopped on the couch, looked up at the TV and thought, man, I am really blind. I hadn't realized, I don't consciously stop to think about the fact that 90% of the time or more when I'm awake, I am looking literally at everything in the world through a set of lenses a set of corrective lenses, a set of lenses that literally park on my eyeballs and bring clarity and focus to everything that I'm looking at. And this morning I have this premise that the gospel functions like that in the life of the believer. The gospel is not merely something that we look at, like to study and to, to even celebrate Man, look at, the, look at the love and the beauty and the grace and the justice and the mercy of Jesus Christ. And we do look at the gospel that way and we do study the gospel that way. But the gospel is also a lens, not that we look at, but that we look through and thereby see everything else in culture, in life, in our own lives far more clearly and accurately. The fact is we all view our world, our culture, even ourselves through a set of lenses, through a whole series of lenses. And the vast majority of the time, we're not even aware that they're there. We think that we are looking at things objectively. We don't even notice that we are looking at them through a whole set of lenses. So this morning, I have four questions for us. What are cultural lenses? What are my cultural lenses? What are my lenses doing to me, and what is the corrective lens if I want to see the world the way God sees them? So, simple question starting out. What are cultural lenses, or what are identity lenses, if I were to put it that way? And as I just mentioned, I think most of us have the assumption that when we view events, we are being objective. But the reality is no one is purely objective in what we see. This is why if you have 10 people or 100 people view the exact same events, they will have 10 or 100 slightly or maybe even dramatically different explanations of what they believe that they observe just rationally and scientifically and objectively. Let me give you an illustration of just an eyewitness event of any kind that as, you know, if the, if the police or a medical care provider were to go around and interview different people who saw something happen and say, well, what did you see? They would not get one explanation. They would get a number. And that's because people stand with a different perspective or a different point of view from which they see and then interpret events. And all of us have at least two different kinds of perspectives. The first, which is obvious, is just merely an optical perspective. That is, when you observe something, you were standing somewhere. And maybe you had a clear view of something, or maybe you had a partially obstructed view, or maybe you didn't see it at all. You just heard what you think you heard. Maybe you had a bird's eye view where you're kind of up above something and you can kind of see as things are starting to come together in this event. But we all have an optical perspective. Several months ago in the 
in the intersection just right outside these windows, there was a car versus bicycle accident. I was actually um, in my Jeep. I was watching this thing play out because I heard a car slam on their brakes. I looked up in my rear view mirror. I saw this collision take place. I jumped out and tried to render aid to the guy who I thought was just probably dead. And he literally like bounced up off the pavement 30 or 40 feet away, um, sprinted his bike over to the curb, threw his bike down and took off running. I stayed to try to help the driver then who the, the hood and the, the windshield was all smashed to pieces. And, and what was interesting about this event is not only did I see it live happen, but later to help this young man with his insurance, I pulled footage from at least three or four different cameras on two different buildings that all saw the same event from different angles or different perspectives. And what, what I noticed as I pieced those different things together is a little bit different storyline had actually happened than what I had initially thought, even though I had seen it with my own eyes. And the thing was, each of those cameras told the truth, but they didn't tell the full story. And it was only by piecing together a number of different optical perspectives that I had a more complete picture and could speak more truthfully about what was going on. I think that's a lesson for us as believers that we, we don't always have to react and speak to everything. It is good and it is wise to gather different perspectives and piece together a more complete picture of what's actually going on before we feel like we need to speak to them, especially with any kind of authority. So optical perspective. On top of that, all of us also have something that's called a mental perspective. And a mental perspective is that because of both nature and nurture, you are inclined to notice certain types of things and you are inclined not to notice other different kinds of things. So if I'm out at lunch with a friend who is in the medical community, as many of you are, okay, and I'm observing this conversation happen at a nearby table between like a boyfriend and girlfriend or a first date or something like that. I may be thinking as a pastor, as a counselor, that she needs to run because he's manipulating her. At the very same time, the, the doctor, the medical professional may be thinking, man, he really needs to get that thing on his neck looked at. I mean, there's something that looks like not right about that. And there may be a fashion designer across the room that's thinking, oh, honey, everybody knows you don't wear white after Labor Day, okay? And we all have a different mental perspective, a different mental map that we bring to observing the same conversation. So we have different takeaways, okay? Another illustration of this, if you watch a Michigan versus Ohio State football game, with an Ohio State fan, first of all, I'll tell you it's unbearable because I think they've won like 47 years in a row, so it's no longer a rivalry. But even though they're literally getting every single call and all the officiating is, is sloped downhill in their direction, they still think they're getting jobbed by the refs. And it just it's impossible to put up with as they're up by three touchdowns and a field goal. Okay, But why can we watch the same sport Okay, as a fun example? and see something very different is because some people are loyal to this team and some people are loyal to this other team and it colors the way that we see things. Now those are benign examples. Let me offer you some more serious examples. And I want to show you that your unique combination of a bunch of different lenses colors and brings focus to 
certain things in your life, in culture, as you simply observe them. They color the way that you interpret literally everything that you could possibly interpret. Okay, so first of all, one of those lenses is your race or your ethnicity. And I'm just going to start drawing some circles here to help you see how these start to overlay one on top of another. So you have a circle and that's your race circle, okay? Your race, whether you're white or black or Asian or Hispanic or some combination of, you know, maybe you're biracial, that very much impacts the way you see current events and certain things about culture. Okay, what about your, your background family or your family of origin? Your background, through a million different micro-touches and conversations and reactions, has significantly shaped the way that today you view your world. Something else that psychologists refer to as social conditioning. That is, you inherit norms through thousands or tens of thousands or eventually millions of positive and negative pieces of feedback, okay? So for example, if through social conditioning you realize, man, life really works for me when I obey the rules and you become a perfectionist and you start to view everything through a perfectionist lens because you've been conditioned that things go really well for you when you follow instructions very carefully, okay? So that social conditioning is starting to form another one. And these are starting to overlay. Socioeconomic status, like the kind of neighborhood you were raised in, the, the kind of wealth you do or don't have is another one. So socioeconomic status, um, something like your political view. So now you've got politics that are coloring stuff. And uh, education, where you went to, especially college and higher education. You know, did you go to Ivy League or did you go to community college or technical college? Uh, what is your highest level of education? How about your religious, your moral, your ethical standards? I mean, this is just is something else that piles on top, and you've got standards. You view things through those standards. Another huge one that's impacting every single one of us every day is kind of a tribal group think. That is, it's probably not one group, but a number of different groups that you've chosen to identify yourself with because they already think similarly to you. Well, by spending time in that subculture and listening to things that confirm what you already believe and dismiss things that you already don't believe, like what's the problem with everyone? What's, what's the solution? And you start to have some of this like tribal group think and it forms another layer. There are additional loyalties, things like I mentioned alma mater and sports teams and brands and all kinds of things that form a layer through which you view the world. Your personality type or, you know, Enneagram is super popular, so now you've got that and personality, and you just start laying all these different filters over top of one another, and even if each filter is just like that wide of a grid, you know, the, the, the more of these things that you lay over top of each other, the more you start to realize something in here is being significantly impacted how I see that and then in how I interpret that is clearly being colored by the overlayment of all these lenses. Another lens, um, you know, is trauma for many of you. Something very negative happened in your life and you carry that pain, you carry that trauma and it and lays on top of other things. Now, this list is nowhere near exhaustive. I'm just suggesting a number of things to show you that you start forming these layers of lenses 
And as you view an event, you view something going on in culture, you view politics, you view economics, you view anything, these are coloring the way you view things. So that's, that's what a cultural lens or an identity lens is. I think that probably makes sense to you. Okay. Now, the, the, the follow-up question is, so what are my cultural lenses? And maybe actually as I went through this, you recognize that a couple of these are some of your dominant lenses. Maybe you would say, yeah, my education was really formative to me. Or, or some trauma that happened in my childhood. I can't get past seeing everything in light of that trauma. Or maybe it's politics or something like that. But you may already see, oh yeah, yeah, I, I know that that is significant. You know, I know I'm a nine wing six and therefore when I see conflict, this is how I have to react, right? Okay, but there are other lenses that you don't see. And I would suggest there are probably dozens or hundreds of lenses that you don't see. And I want to just offer you three practical suggestions about how you would go about seeing those things. Number one, learn to dialogue with people who are different than yourself. And by dialogue, I mean not shouting over, not arguing. I mean dialogue, like asking questions and listening. Because what's interesting is, is as you talk to people and as you listen to people who are different than yourself, you start to realize like, wow, you interpret a lot through that thing that happened in fourth grade or you see everything through your blackness or your immigrant status or your vocation. And what's helpful then is as you recognize it in someone else, you say, I wonder how I do the same thing myself. I wonder how my education has become a filter, has become a lens through which I see things. I wonder how my, in my case, how does my whiteness impact the way I see things? And by the way, we have a problem in our country because white is the dominant culture. And so a lot of us have concluded that there is no such thing as white culture. You know, you could have a black friend or a Hispanic friend or an Asian friend come to you and be like, wow, you just don't see that you're seeing things through white culture. And you're like, oh, what are you talking about? Right? You have culture and they have culture and ethnic food and all this wonderful stuff. We're, we're just Americans, you know, but that's not fault. That's not right, is it? No, even our race, our ethnicity, all these things form layers and you'll see it in someone else and it teaches you to see it in yourself. Secondly, along with dialoguing with people who are different than you, ask someone who knows you really well. Someone who has had thousands of different touches with your life and they've seen how you react to different things. Because if I had friends that came to me right now and said, hey, what do you think some of my lenses are? It would be easy to tell them what some of their lenses are. Not, not as a matter of judgment or a negative thing, but just say as an observation, like you clearly see things through, you know, give you an example. Uh, you've always had law enforcement in your family. So it's easy for you to back the blue. And I'm not saying that's a wrong thing. It is natural and instinctive for you to view things through a lens of police officers are good. Someone else who may have lost a family member to, you know, authoritarian violence would have a very different lens, Okay. So ask people who know you well. Then thirdly, examine the why behind some of your most polarized beliefs. Okay, You hold to some polarized beliefs. You, you are at the extreme of something somewhere in your life where you support a, you know, a polarizing person or polarizing team. And you know full well that there are other people who not just disagree with you. They strongly disagree with you. And what would be helpful is to go back and say, why is that thing so important to me? Why have I concluded what I've concluded about that thing that other people think very differently? And that helps you kind of unpack what some of these lenses are. Now, before we go on to the next two things, let me encourage you to actually write 
out what some of your dominant lenses are. Because again, it's very important to understand if we are going to be counter-cultural, you first need to understand how is it that I'm already automatically, by default, without ever thinking about it, viewing and interpreting everything that's going on in culture. So write out those cultural beliefs, opinions, and preferences until this becomes second nature to recognize these things in yourself, okay? Now, why does this matter? Okay, and we're coming to Galatians chapter two this morning and I wanna to begin to show you why, why am I talking about this, okay? Why does this matter? Because have you ever looked at, have you ever looked at the world through you know, rose-colored glasses or maybe you have like fun glasses they're bright yellow or bright blue or some other color and you put them on and you look through them. Well, what happens to everything if you are wearing colored lenses? I mean, doesn't everything just literally and automatically take on that hue? And what's further interesting about when you're wearing shaded glasses of some color or another is you'll, you'll immediately notice if you're being thoughtful about this that certain colors that you're viewing out there become more clear, become more pronounced. You see them more, they jump out at you. And other colors just kind of vanish, they fade, they're, they're kind of colored over by the color that you're looking through. This is the first reason I want you to, the first thing I want you to see about what your cultural lenses are doing to you, this is your point A, is they're subverting at least part of what is good and true. For example, if you're looking at everything through a conservative lens, it may be nearly impossible for you to look at a liberal, even a liberal friend, and see something good about what they believe. You just think everything's wrong. And a liberal, you're doing this to the conservative. You're just assuming that you're right about everything and they're wrong about everything. And what that does is instead of celebrating the truth and the beauty that's, that there's kernels of it in almost everything in God's good creation that's now broken, but you can't see it. So you're subverting at least part of what's true. By the way, over time, we have a tendency for our, our lenses get thicker and thicker. We confirm our biases as we get new evidence. We kind of cherry pick without even knowing we're doing this. We pick and choose, we discard certain information that doesn't fit our existing paradigm. And that becomes very dangerous because we're falling into a tighter and tighter spiral of a type of groupthink where we are literally subverting part of what is good and true in God's creation that God wants us to see to make wise and gospel-driven decisions. A second fallout from our cultural lenses is that they are stirring up interpersonal conflict. Okay, so when, when we have all these lenses and we not just see them for what they are, okay, it's just a lens. It's just something that I view the world through, okay? It's not right or wrong necessarily. It's just something I look through. See, if we could have that conversation, we could have a lot of thoughtful conversations. But what we do is we so closely identify ourselves with these lenses that when someone disagrees with you about one of these things that's just automatic for you to see your world through, you have not just a disagreement, you have hostility and animosity, you have strife. And then finally, and I think this one's probably most important, what are my cultural lenses doing to me? They are inverting my whole authority structure. Okay, as we begin to look at last week, our primary allegiance belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God, who is Savior, who is Judge. He is all these things, okay? So he deserves our highest allegiance. 
what happens with these lenses is that we not only look through these lenses to look at culture, but even as followers of Jesus, do you know how easy it is to take these set of lenses and go back and read the word of God through these lenses? So here's my caution. We will either be people who learn to view culture through the lens of scripture and let scripture be the interpretive grid, or we will do the opposite. We will look at scripture and we will interpret it through the lens of culture and our experience and our education, what we've heard and the social conditioning that's gone on and all these things. And what happens is we invert the authority structure in what we're actually doing. If we're interpreting scripture through these lenses without identifying them and being extremely careful to get at the root of what does this text actually say? What did it mean in context? Now, therefore, what could it possibly mean for me today living in 2020 in Denver, Colorado in an urban environment? Okay, that's what we need to go through. Uh, I'll give you a, a real quick Western and Eastern culture example of this. Western culture looks at what the Bible says about sexuality and gender and just says it's preposterous. It, it's like, it's so closet and closed-minded. Like, how could you be so bigoted to say these things? Why? Because we're looking at what the Bible says about sexuality through the lens of social conditioning Decades and decades of work in the field of gender engineering and doing a lot of social engineering around that topic. And when we go back to scripture, we're just automatically looking at that topic through the lens of what most people in our culture believe, and it colors what we think of the Bible. Now, what's interesting is you go to an Eastern culture, and they would look at what the Bible says about sexuality, and they would say, well, of course that's right. But I don't like what the Bible says about forgiveness and reconciliation. Like, are you kidding me? 70 times seven, forgive a person who sinned against me? Like, they're gonna start taking advantage of me. They're not gonna be serious. How can I really test the authenticity of their forgiveness? No, I don't like what the Bible says about this. And rather than just letting the Bible speak for itself, let the gospel speak for itself, Eastern cultures are interpreting other things through the lens of what most of their culture believes, okay? Now we gotta recognize what we're doing when we do that is we're putting God on trial, we're putting ourselves in the place of God, and we're saying, I, and my opinions, and my preferences, I have them just because I have them. I can now sit in judgment on God. I can sit in judgment on his word. And one of the clearest ways to be countercultural is just say, God, Spirit of God, just show me where I'm doing that. Open my eyes so I can submit to the authority of your word, which brings life and health and peace. Now let's go to this final point. And let's, let's I, I could give this to you propositionally. I want to give it to you in a story. So we're going to be in Galatians 2. I actually want to start in Acts chapter 10, where the famous apostle Peter, a Jewish male, an Orthodox Jew, is up on his rooftop at noon and he's praying. And the Bible says that he, he falls into this trance, this dreamlike state where this sheet comes out of heaven just filled with every kind of animal and reptile and bird. And he hears this voice from heaven that says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And he looks in this blanket and he's like, not so, Lord, I can't do that. See, there's, there's stuff in the blanket that's not kosher. Right? Doesn't, doesn't adhere to the Old Testament cleanliness laws. 
So I can't do that. And the sheet disappears and it comes down a second time. And the same thing happens. Rise, kill, eat. No, I can't do it. Goes back up, comes down a third time. Same thing. Now, just as Peter's like, what in the world is this dream about? Like, what does this mean? There's a knock on the door. And it's the servants of a Roman centurion named Cornelius. And they say, hey, I, I think you're supposed to come back to Cornelius's house because God said, we're supposed to listen to whatever you say. You have a message for us. So chapter 10, verse 28, Peter's now gone back with these Romans, these Gentiles, to their house. He enters the house. It's packed with people. Verse 28, and he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. You see what happened? Is Peter is looking at this Roman soldier and the Gentile servants through the lens of his maleness, through his, through his uh, Jewish orthodoxy, through his legalism, through the law. And he's like, nope, can't, can't eat with you, can't do anything. But then God shows him that this, this whole vision about animals was really about people. And there are clean people and unclean people. Okay? That's what racism says. That's what ethnocentricity says. But God is breaking down this lens that Peter has used to interpret culture, to interpret society, to interpret what he's going to do and not do. Now let's go on in the story. Um, verse 44, while Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on those who heard the word. So he's preaching the gospel. The Holy Spirit comes on them and the believers from among them were circumcised and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Okay, so God rearranged Peter's lenses. And he's like, you've been separating from these people. You've been feeling racially and morally superior to these people because you are looking through your lenses that you never even stopped to examine. Now I'm showing you, look at these people through the lens of the gospel that I have accepted every tribe, every nation, every tongue, not by their performance, not by their bloodline, but by the grace of Jesus Christ who lived for them and died for them and rose again and invited them to come home, come home into one family through adoption, okay? Now, now let's go on because chapter 11 then happens and Peter's called back to Jerusalem and Jerusalem's like, oh, hold on, time out. What is going on? You can't eat with uncircumcised Gentiles. We don't do that. That doesn't fit our lenses, right? And Peter says this. He says, the Spirit told me to make no distinction between the Jew and the Gentile. The Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. He's learning what it's like to identify these lenses and to look at culture through a gospel lens instead. Let's go on here because in Galatians 2, where I had you turn, let me look with you at verses 11 through 14 just briefly because something happens. Galatians 2, 11, but when Cephas, that's another name for Peter. So when Peter came to Antioch, Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned for before certain men came from James, he, that is Peter, was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. 
And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Do you see what happened? Is this legalistic party of Orthodox Jews comes up from Jerusalem, and what does Peter do? He reverts back to this, doesn't he? He reverts back to seeing things as an Orthodox Jew, and he starts choosing, ooh, like which category of people do I want to be associated with? These these pagans who are Gentiles who have just now come to faith in Christ, should I eat with them? I mean, they, they haven't taken the sign of the covenant. They haven't cut the flesh. Ooh, and, and, and he's putting the old lens back on. And I want you to notice, and the reason I'm talking about this so firmly to you today is because the apostle Peter, guided by the spirit of God, says this is a core gospel issue. When you put these things on and you view people through these lenses and then you go right on ahead into your prejudice and your bias and your hypocrisy, that is not what it looks like to walk in step with the gospel lens. And Paul tears into him and says, your conduct is not in step with the gospel. So let me, let me leave you this one big idea, illustrate it, and then we're done. The one big idea I have for you today is that countercultural living must begin with countercultural vision. If we're going to live counter to the culture that surrounds us. We need to see things essentially through the eyes of Christ, through the eyes of the gospel, evaluating both culture and our own lenses through the one lens of the gospel. Okay? If we want to live the gospel, we must envision through the gospel, in other words. Let me give you another, uh, just a couple quick examples here. Acts 15, 1 and 2 says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. Okay, I thought the gospel unified. Well, it does. But it unifies around the person and work of Jesus. It unifies around the free grace, the, the unmerited favor of God toward us in Christ. And the reason it's so important to get this is because if the gospel unites around Christ, it also must separate around the person and work of Christ. And when Paul sees again, look, you are, you are telling people that the grace of God is not sufficient to save a person, that they also have to do these other things. Well, that is a lie. That is not the truth of the gospel. And he rebukes them. Another example, in 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23, these famous, famous verses where Paul's just saying, look, my passion is the gospel. I want everyone to hear the gospel. And he's like, for, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them to Jesus. He says, to the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that by all means I might save some. Now listen to this summary statement. He says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. See, because Paul was determined to view everyone through the lens of the gospel, 
instead of through these lenses? He was able to ditch his prejudice. He was able to hold loosely to these things and realize, yeah, I tend to be pharisaical. I tend to be, I, I like the law. I like order. I like structure. I like authority. But while still submitting to Christ and to the gospel and viewing things through those lens, I, I'm free to let go of some of these things and adapt so that I can not compromise integrity, not compromise the gospel itself, but I can adapt some things about myself to go and love different kinds of people. And what I want you to notice in that is the gospel doesn't eradicate race or education or gender or morals or socioeconomic classes. It doesn't get rid of them. It redeems them and it relativizes them. So as a believer, God is not like, hey, your gender doesn't matter, your race doesn't matter, like, just get rid of it, forget it. No, you bring something beautiful to the diverse family of God because you have some different lenses, some different things are true about you, okay? But you just recognize them. And I, I think this is so important to understand how the gospel relativizes these other lenses. In other words, it just puts them in their proper perspective where it's not like, ooh, yeah, I am a white, male, privileged, you know, upper class, this, that, and the other, and then way down here, I'm a Christian. No, I would say, I am a Christian. And I'm a Christian who happens to be a white male with privilege. So what does that mean then if the gospel is my primary lens? It means I use that privilege. I use that opportunity. I use that wealth with time and money and abilities and different things to invest in other people for the sake of the gospel. If you had three people, and I don't mean this to stereotype, but I'm just using myself as one. If you had a wealthy white male who's a Christian, you had a poor black female who is a Christian, and you had a poor black female who is a non-Christian, which two of them do you think automatically should view the world, should interpret culture most similarly? And I think it'd be very natural to say, well, the, the two black women who have all these things in common, race and socioeconomic status and probably upbringing and a lot of the social conditioning. And, and yes, I would agree that in a natural world, that would be the case. But the beauty of the gospel is it says, because Christ is the highest level of my identity, because the gospel is the primary lens through which I view not only culture, but through which I view and interpret my other lenses. Should it not be true that regardless of race and class and gender differences, different believers ought to be thinking Christianly together about some very different things? And then you bring your race and you bring the perspective of your gender and you bring the perspective of your education and you bring the perspective of your trauma and being rejected in certain things, overlooked in certain things, maybe because of your gender or your race. And we have conversations for the sake of the gospel about how together can the church be more countercultural to reach our cities for Christ. So countercultural living begins with countercultural vision, evaluating both culture and our own lenses through the gospel lens, first and foremost. Let's learn to practice this this week through some of the exercises we give you, and let's go on this journey of a gospel counterculture together.